Song of Solomon. It's in the middle of the Bible. It, find Job, Ecclesiastes, and then you will come to the Song of Solomon. It's a fairly short book, just a few pages, so if you skip past it, that's understandable. But if you've hit the uh, book of Isaiah, you've gone too far. Logan, no offense taken. I'm just thankful because your testimony is the testimony of everyone who is outside of Christ. We just don't have ears to hear until the Lord gives us ears to hear. So I'm thankful that we get to celebrate your baptism today and the, and the Lord giving you those ears. The Song of Solomon. We're spending six more weeks in this particular small book of the Bible leading up to Easter and I want to begin by sharing with you a story that is really characteristic of brothers and sisters in Christ from several hundred years ago. On August 14th, 1836, a young man who was later to have a really quite remarkable ministry preached a sermon as a candidate for the position of minister in a new congregation. And of all passages, he chose to expound a passage from the Song of Solomon. And these were his opening words that startled his audience. He said, There is no book of the Bible which affords a better test of the depth of someone's Christianity than the Song of Solomon. If a man's religion be all in his head, a well-set form of doctrines built like mason work, stone above stone, but exercises no influence upon his heart, this book cannot but offend him. For there are no stiff statements of doctrine here upon which his heartless religion may be built. Or if a man's religion be all of his own fancy, if like pliable in the pilgrim's progress he be taken with the outward beauty of Christianity, if like the seed sown upon the rocky ground his religion is fixed only in the surface faculties of the mind, while the heart remains rocky and unmoved, though he still relish this book much more than the first man, still there is a mysterious breathing of in, intimate affection in it which cannot, be cannot but stumble and offend him. But if a man's religion be heart religion, if he has not only doctrines in the head but love of Jesus in the heart, if he hath not only felt his need of him but been brought to cleave to him as the chiefest among 10,000 and the altogether lovely, then this book will be inestimably precious to his soul for it contains the tenderest breathings of the believer's heart towards the Savior and the tenderest breathings of the Savior's heart toward the believer. Well, who was that young candidate who preached that sermon in that potential new church? The preacher was Robert Murray McShane, and the church was St. Peter's in Dundee, Scotland. In fact, during his ministry, which was not very long in terms of years, he died at the age of 27. He would preach from almost every verse of the Song of Solomon. So this morning, we're going to begin walking through these verses that McShane and so many others down through the centuries have found to be the breathings of the heart and soul of Christ to the believer and the believer to Christ. So we're going to cover chapter 1, verse 2 through chapter 2, verse 7 this morning. And here's where I want to begin. The request for love in the palace. We're just going to take this poem as it comes to us and read it as we go. Let's begin with the first two verses in verses 2 through 4. First three verses. 
Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. In the opening verses of this song, we meet a woman who is in love, deeply in love. There's something immediate about her love, even if it is gradual. She is boldly inviting intimacy from her beloved. No passivity, no shyness, no weakness, no silence, and no formal peck on the cheek from cold, apathetic lips. Her passion is expressed as it moves in rapid succession from let him kiss me to draw me after you to let us run. There's an intensification of desire here. She wants to be with the man she loves and she wants that relationship to move forward as quickly as possible. Now, in chapter 2, verse 7, we are given one of the main points of the Song of Solomon. I referred to it last week, but let's read it again together. Chapter 2, verse 7, which is repeated three times in the song. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It is an instruction to the young, especially young women, much like Proverbs is primarily a manual for young men, although it speaks to young women as well. The Song of Solomon is primarily a manual for young women to learn how to navigate love as God intended. It's an instruction to the young to keep this vision of love presented in the Song of Solomon in front of them while they wait. The stirring and awakening of love describes the kind of emotional and physical behaviors that culminate in the consummation of a marriage. The bride wants the daughter to defer these activities until the right time, not to forsake them altogether. In fact, throughout this song, as we read through the words of the bride and the bridegroom, there's a third party always mentioned. In fact, many Bibles will give you headings here to describe who's speaking. Those weren't in the original text, but they're helpful for us to navigate who's talking. And we see at the end of verse 4, at least in my Bible, it's described as others talking. These others are the daughters of Jerusalem that are friends of the bride. They're maid of honor, matron of honor, um, the, 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 the attendants of the bride, or friends of, alongside the bride. And they will speak to her and she will speak back to them because they are mutually encouraging one another as they go through this psalm about how to navigate love as God intended. The bride wants them to defer the gratification of desire because she wants love to be enjoyed to the full. Here's what Jim Hamilton says. People who believe what the Bible teaches about sexuality are sometimes viewed as killjoys, as those who won't let others have any fun. But that's not it at all. We want people to have the most pleasure with the least regret. We want people to enjoy the comprehensive interpersonal union of soul and body in the exclusive, permanent, monogamous, life-producing covenant of marriage. And that is the point of the song. It's not prudish. It's candid. 
And it's candid for the reason that it's meant to paint a picture of how God relates to us and how we are to relate to one another, especially husband and wife in marriage, so that we will long for that and wait for that, knowing how good it can be. Brothers and sisters, we were made for love. This song teaches us that. Deep down, we all need it in ways we don't even understand or acknowledge. We search and we search and we find glimpses and moments and tastes and samples, whether they be in movies or books or life itself. We have genuine experiences of love and marriage and family and church, and yet nothing quite gets us outside of our own hurts or our own self-interest or our own sins. We need the realest love that there is. We were made for divine love because we were created by divine love. God is love means in part that love is central to who God is. When we say that God is love, is himself love, we're saying that real love itself has its origin and essence in God. And this cannot be true unless God is Trinity. If God were not Trinity, but merely some sort of solitary divinity, he could neither be love nor be God. Think about it. A solitary God cannot love. He may learn to love. He may yearn for love. But he cannot in himself be love since love requires an object. Real love requires relationship. And in the doctrine of the Trinity, we finally see how love is part of the fabric of creation to begin with because it's essential to the eternal, need-nothing creator himself. From eternity past, all the way into eternity future, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been in a loving community, in relationship. They have loved each other. And that loving relationship is bound up in the very nature of God himself. So the Trinity isn't some weird religious idea. Christians have stupidly clung to throughout the years. It's the answer to the deepest longings of every human heart for love. Where does that come from? Where, where does the reality that we're all looking for love comes from, come from to begin with? It's because we're made in the image of a God who is love. Now we see three reasons why the bride longs for the love of her bridegroom here in this particular set of verses in the first three verses here and I want to walk through them one at a time notice first of all verse two let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine the main reason that she loves him so much is because he loves her so much it's the king's love for the bride that motivates the bride's love for the king here's what Spurgeon says Human joy derived from earthly sources is a muddy, dirty pool at which men would not drink did they know there is a stream sweeter, cooler, and far more refreshing. The love of Christ is the grandest stimulant of the renewed nature that can be known. It enables the fainting man to revive from his swooning. It causes the feeble man to leap up from his bed of languishing, and it makes the weary man strong again. Are you weary, brother, and sick of life? You only need more of Christ's love shed abroad in your heart. Are you, dear sister, ready to faint through unbelief? You only need more of Christ's love and all shall be well with you. 
Notice also the bride longs for the king because, verse 3, your anointing oils are fragrant. This is not just a comment of how good he smells. Although cologne and deodorant are good pro tips for would-be husbands. But it's referring to the position as king that this man has. Oil was used to anoint David and Solomon as the king of Israel. And those oils were fragrant. This anointing of the spirit on David's greatest son, Jesus, brings the sweetest smells that can ever touch a nose. Isaiah 61 describes them. When Jesus read this from the scroll in Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And finally, the bride longs for the king because... His name is like oil poured out. His name speaks of his reputation. She's not simply praising him for what others think about him, although they do think well of him, as we see at the end of verse 4. But the context is that the king, and because he is king, God promised to make Solomon's name great, and his name will live on forever. We read of this in Psalm 72, for example. But we know that Solomon's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had a greater name still. For we read in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, on which Solomon sat. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And just as the results of Solomon's greatness caused the virgins in verse 4 to love him, so the Virgin Mary magnified the Lord and expressed her love for him as well when she knew that one greater than Solomon was in her own womb. It's important to note that what is fueling all of this attraction is the character of the beloved, not just their appearance. And this is a mistake so common in our own culture regarding love and relationships and marriage. Almost all of our focus is on compatibility and chemistry without ever asking the more fundamental person question, what kind of person is this? Most of us end up marrying someone who's a reflection of our own character. Young people, cultivate your character first. A secular culture will not serve you here because the heroes of our secular culture are by and large marital disasters. Having character is a prerequisite for marriage and building character is a goal in marriage. And now you see why so many either delay it or opt out altogether. We don't have a ton of character ourselves and don't want to be more deeply formed in character through marriage. And if we don't want that, Marriage won't work. So when the going gets tough, we often get going. Now, we aren't told where the bride is located in these opening verses. But since the woman can smell the king's fragrance, perhaps it indicates that he is close by. In fact, we're told in verse 4, the king has brought me into his chambers. So it appears she's in the king's palace 
and walking in the vicinity of his rooms. And as she does this, her passion is increased for him. Dear ones, while our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, is away, we can still increase our desire for him by drawing close to the place where he dwells. Where does he dwell? The church. The church are the chambers of the king. Malcolm McLean says it's a good way to think of church services as corridors in the king's palace. And each of these services, we should smell the fragrance of Christ as he comes to meet with us. We lay ourselves in the way of allurement when we come to church on the lookout for our king. Dear ones, should we not long with love for our king as the bride and virgins do here in these opening verses? Are we not longing with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.7 and Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you not seen him? And having not yet seen him, do you love him? Like 1 Peter 1.8 says. Are we not in the language of 1 Timothy 4.8 among those who love his appearing? Are we not with the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews 9.28 among those who are eagerly waiting for him? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? It says that unless we are eagerly waiting for him, we won't be saved by him. Because to wait is to long, and to long is to love. And Paul said in Ephesians 6.24, Cursed be all those who do not love our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you love and long for his appearing? The Spirit and the bride say, Come, Lord Jesus. That is how the bride talks. The one who has had the most love of Christ in their life, nevertheless, cries out for more. If ever there was a man on earth who it seemed had the love of Christ poured into him to the full, it was Samuel Rutherford. If you haven't read some of his letters, I encourage you to do so. One of those letters describes his own love for Christ when he says that he floated upon Christ's love like a ship on the river, and then he quaintly asked that his vessel may founder and go to the bottom till that blessed stream flow right over the masthead of his ship. He wanted to be baptized in Christ's love and flung into the ocean, and this is what the true Christian always longs for. No lover of the Lord Jesus Christ has ever said that they love Jesus enough. Longing to see our heavenly husband is evidence that we are his earthly bride. Should our relationship with him not occupy the center of our thinking, do we find ourselves at times even, can I say it, daydreaming about him? Lost in amazement at just how wonderful he is? How incredible it is to be loved by him? And, and longing to know more of him? Ought we not from time to time wear out our friends and family with endless chatter about him? About how wonderful he is? about how good he has been to our souls. But that isn't the way it is most of the time, is it? If we're truly honest with ourselves. Why? Why is it not that way? Well, we get the answer in the next verses. We come secondly to the resistance to love from the fields. The resistance to love from the fields. Look at verse 5, where the bride responds, responds, I am very dark. But lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me, 
because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I've not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? See, there's a problem that this particular bride has in receiving the love of her king. She's self-conscious about her physical appearance. Her appearance has been somewhat affected by her work, and it's made her insecure and vulnerable. She's plagued with fear and doubt, and she's conscious of her own low self-esteem, brought about by her enforced neglect of her own physical appearance. Her skin is dark and coarse, because she's been working outdoors. So to be clear, she's been working in the fields under the heat of the sun, and as she's working in the vineyard for her family to provide, she has not kept up her own vineyard well. That is, she has not sought to make herself as physically beautiful as she could be because she's been consumed with serving her family and taking care of the vineyard associated with her family. So this description is social, Being dark and lovely has to do with her social status, not her racial status. It has to do with the fact that she's been working outside. And in comparison to the king who looks and smells so nice and is so wealthy, because he's largely remained indoors, she is one whose social standing, likely poor, whose skin was darkened because she was working outdoors under the heat of the sun. She doesn't want him to view her as a prostitute. So she doesn't, she's caught between this tension of, I don't want want him to see me as I am, but neither do I want to veil myself so that he thinks I'm a prostitute, because that's how prostitutes would normally approach anyone. They would be in a veil. So she's conflicted. She's ashamed of who she is, but yet she doesn't want to manufacture another appearance to make her look like someone that she isn't, but that the king might think she is. Brothers and sisters, is this not our own testimony and our own sin? We, we're ashamed of who we are, of what we've done, but we know we can't fix it ourselves. We know we can't just manufacture another identity in hopes that the king will receive us, because if nothing else, he's going to think worse of us for doing it. This is our own condition. We know this all too well as believers. Now, this bride's father is not mentioned, and it appears that she's been forced to work in the family vineyard as some sort of farm laborer who's unable to stand against the authoritarian behavior of her brothers who have exploited her like a servant. This is the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. She's a poor worker in her home, serving her family, longing for the love of her king, knowing that she's not worthy of such love. You almost think stories like this are invented because we're made in God's image or something. But the Bible told it far before Disney did. But this woman is not despairing. She recognizes that despite all of this, what does she say in verse 5? I am very dark, but lovely. Is this not our experience in the Christian life? We know we're made in the image of God. We sense our worth and dignity and value, and yet owing to our sin, we know we are unworthy. 
And so we experience this sort of spiritual schizophrenia at times, engaging in a he loves me, he loves me not relationship with God based on how we view ourselves in his eyes. The trials and difficulties that we experience in life can lead us to believe that we're unworthy of love. Spurgeon again says, Perhaps you are afraid, beloved, that the master should look at you, for you feel yourself so unworthy. You've been persecuted until your spirit is broken. Perhaps you've been put to some ignoble work. You've toiled under the whip of the law, but you have a worse sorrow even than this. You're conscious that you are restrained and you are conscious that you are restrained in prayer and that you've neglected searching the word and that you've not lived as near to God as you ought. And all this seems to make you feel as if you could not come into close communion with Christ. Come, my brother, my sister, shake off your unbelief. May the master shake it off from you. And he does in the next verses. Point number three, the reception of love at the table. Look at verse eight where we hear for the first time the bridegroom, the king, speak. He says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. You remember in verse 7, she asks, Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. And he tells her in verse 8, Follow the tracks of the field. They will lead me right. It'll lead you right to me. I want you to follow them, and I want you to come. Verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. And then the virgins speak. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. She speaks again. While the king was on his couch... My nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. He speaks. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She responds. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He responds, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She responds, as an apple among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I have sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my hand, his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you stir not, you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So here the bride is now with the king, sitting in one of his banqueting houses with the daughters of Jerusalem accompanying her. And while the bride's assessment of herself is really quite low, how does her beloved describe her? Three times he calls her beautiful many times most beautiful. Though she views herself only as some sort of common flower, just a lily of the valley, a rose of Sharon, as someone greater and wiser than Solomon would one day say, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of the lilies of the field. And she to him is a lily among thorns. Line up all the ladies in the world 
They are briars and brambles, thorns and thistles. She's the only one that captures his gaze. Robert Murray McShane says, Christ sees nothing so fair in all this world as the believer. All the rest of the world is like thorns, but the believer is like a beautiful lily in his eyes. The believer is like a lovely flower in the eyes of Christ. First, because justified in the eyes of Christ, washed in his blood, the believer is pure and white as a lily. Second, a believer's nature is changed. Once they were like the barren, prickly thorn, fit only for burning. Now Christ has put a new spirit in them, the dew that has been given to them, and they grow up like a lily. Third, because the believer is so lonely in the world, observe there is but one lily, but many thorns. So there is a world lying in wickedness and a little flock that believe in Jesus. Some believers are cast down because they feel solitary and alone. Be not cast down. It's one of the marks of Christ's people that they, are not al- that they are alone in the world, and yet they are not alone. It's one of the very beauties which Christ sees in his people that they are solitary among a world of thorns. Do not be discouraged. The world is the world of loneliness. When you are transplanted to the garden of God, then you shall be no more lonely. Then you shall be away from all the thorns as flowers in a rich garden blend together their thousand odors to enrich the the passing breeze. So in the paradise above, you shall join the thousands of the redeemed, blending with theirs the odor of your praise. You shall join with the redeemed as living flowers to form a garland for your redeemer's brow. Now, in addition to referring to his bride as a lily, he calls her a horse. Did you catch that in verse 8 or verse 9? I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, we're going to encounter as we go throughout uh, this particular song many metaphors and illustrations which will strike us in our contemporary cultural context context, not as a compliment, but as an insult. Guys, you can go ahead and try that on your wives this afternoon, calling her a horse. Dear bride, you trot like a Clydesdale through the house, and your disheveled hair flows briskly through the wind on Derby Day. Now, obviously, culturally at that time, to be identified with a horse was to be identified with the noblest of creatures. It was to be paid the highest of compliments. She was being described as a horse among Pharaoh's chariots, as someone who was regal and dignified and elegant and stunning to him in contrast to how she viewed herself. And what did this love do for her? It beautified her. It opened her up. Like a lily of the valley that was shriveling under the heat of the sun... She was, by virtue of what the king was saying to her and speaking to her and confessing his love to her, that she began to bloom and blossom. And she now stands far removed from a vineyard and in the presence of her king as a stunning queen. Her natural beauty has been enhanced by the additional external adornment of radiant jewelry that has been given to her by the virgin daughters of Jerusalem. And he has looked into her eyes and told her she is beautiful multiple times. And there is something here about the power of Christ and words to redefine our identity, isn't it? Fundamentally, our identity is shaped by the stories we tell ourselves. And that's as true in the unbelieving world 
as it is in the church. Life and breath are in the power of the tongue. Through this man's verbal praise, this woman goes from a view of herself as a common wilted flower to a lily in full bloom. Married brothers, let this be a lesson in how we use our words with our wives. More than just thanking them for washing the clothes and doing the dishes and all their domestic activities, remind them that you find them to be beautiful. Remind them that instead of mopping up the house and all those things that you appreciate, remind her that in your eyes, she's altogether lovely. Instead of moping around the house singing, you've lost that loving feeling, turn your eyes afresh upon your bride and see how every little thing she does is magic. You've lost that loving feeling because you've stopped looking. In the words of theologian Billy Joel, tell her about it. Tell her everything you feel. Give her every reason to accept that you're for real. Some men would rather die than praise their wives. And by doing so, you throw ice in your marriage bed and you stand as an usher at the potential funeral of your own marriage. As married sisters, is the same not true for you? Throughout these opening chapters, the beloved praises her beloved both ways. When she says, when he says she's beautiful, she responds the same. Verse 16, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. So this is not a one-way thing. When he calls her a lily among the brambles, she calls him an apple tree, something my wife is always saying to me. (laughs) Jesus is the one who speaks life over his people as the king. He is this apple tree in its fullest sense. Just as this son of David, Solomon, was a form of an apple tree to this bride, so Christ is our apple tree. He's the source of rest and nourishment and whose fruit is truly sweet to our taste. His banner over us is love, a banner that bears the emblem of the cross on it and on the sins that he bore for our sake. He died and he invites us into his banqueting house as the risen king where his flesh is true bread and his blood is true drink, rich food for any weary soul. Now this particular bridegroom is called both a king in chapter 1, verses 4 and 12, and a shepherd in chapter 1, verse 7, which points us to the true bridegroom of the Lord Jesus as the true shepherd king. Just as the bride rests securely in the shade of this king and in the provision of his protective embrace, so Christ's banner over us is love, and we rest securely in him and in the security of his firm embrace of us. Hosea 14, 4 through 7, describing God's love for backslidden Israel is even more true of what God has done for us in Christ. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the dove and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. In other words, the love of Christ that he said, or the love of God here that would bring Israel to life, would reflect the love of Christ in a greater measure who would bring his people back to life. See, the love of Jesus for us 
is not governed by anything in us or the way we think about ourselves. The only thing that matters is what the king says and what the king thinks. We were black as the tents of Kedar. We were spiritually deformed and broken in our image-bearing beauty. And while we justly deserved the righteous wrath of this king, eternal judgment and consequential hatred, yet he loved us. We kicked against him and we despised him. In the language of Luke 19, we will not have this man to reign over us. And when we heard of his loving us, perhaps many of us sneered at it. In fact, he was despised and rejected of men. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. We despised him and we didn't esteem him. We thought his love was just an empty story. And yet he loved us, even while we were his enemies. We killed him. We must confess with sorrow this morning that we were the murderers of the prince of life and glory. Our hands are stained with his blood. And yet he saw all this and loved us still. Our Savior so loved us that he stripped himself of his robes of radiance, laid aside his scepter and crown, and became an infant in Bethlehem. And for 30 years he lived a life of poverty and shame that we might become rich in him. Jesus was content to live here without a place to rest his head that he might go and prepare a place for us, a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. If we were to take this image in the Song of Solomon, we could say that the king and the bride swap places. The king became as the bride was, despised and rejected by men so that we might become as the king is, noble and regal. Can you hear the Lord Jesus again this morning, brothers and sisters, in the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane? Look there at his soul as it's exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death, heaving in emotional distress on the cusp of a nervous breakdown even under the weight of such spiritual and psychological trauma because he loves you? Do you see him offering his back to soldiers and his cheek to mockers because he loves you? Do you see him offering his face for spitting like a lamb before its shearer is silent because he loves you? Like a lamb that's brought to the slaughter, he doesn't open his mouth but patiently bears it all on our behalf because he loves you? Do you see him bearing his cross Upon his mangled, broken shoulders, staggering through Jerusalem's streets, unpitied by the masses, except by a few poor women who could by no means contain their grief to help him because he loves you? Do you see him giving his feet and his hands to the nails, knowing that these men can do nothing except what's granted to them by, by, their, by his Father in heaven, and at once he could command a legion of angels to deliver him, and he doesn't because he loves you? With power to deliver himself, he yet remains captive. Do you see him lifting, the soldiers lifting the cross and placing it in the hole in the ground on Golgotha? Do you hear him cry according to Psalm 22? I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. You have brought me into the dust of death because he loves you. Look in his eyes. Keep looking until you sense a sword go through your own soul as it went through Mary's? Do you see him thirsting and yet being mocked with vinegar? Do you see him praying and yet being jeered and call, saying that he's calling upon Elijah? Will you not love him who loved you so? Dear ones, it's not the love, it's not the love of Christ wonderful for us. What a wonderful thing it is to be loved by the Son of God in this way. As one hymn writer says, Jesus, my Savior, to Bethlehem came, born in a manger to sorrow and shame. 
Oh, it was wonderful. Blessed be his name, seeking for me, for me. Jesus, my Savior, on Calvary's tree, paid the great debt, and my soul he set free. Oh, it was wonderful. How could it be dying for me, for me? Jesus, my Savior, the same as of old, while I was wandering afar from the fold, gently and long did he plead for my soul, calling for me, for me. Jesus, my Savior, shall come from on high, sweet is the promise as weary years fly. Oh, I shall see him descending the sky, coming for me, for me. He was in glory, lacking nothing. He was in his Father's very heart, enjoying ineffably sublime delight. If he wanted to cast his eyes of love on any of his creatures, there were lots of angels to do it. But his heart was drawn to the dung hills of the earth where he found us who were utterly unworthy of his regard. And there he pitied us and did not leave us in our lostness. All through the ages before the world was and through the centuries in which the world has existed, Christ has loved us every single moment and he's loved us to the full. Our Lord can never stop loving you, dear Christian, because he never began loving you. He's been loving you before the stars knew their place or the planets began their respective orbits. If Jesus loves you now, it's because he's loved you forever infinite, unbounded, everlasting. You were eternally chosen in Christ, eternally given to Christ by the Father, eternally accepted in the Beloved, and eternally loved by Christ himself. And that's in addition to all the joy that we experience and did experience when we were brought to the foot of the cross. To see him love us still when we were broken in pieces, thinking there was no hope for us, but we looked up to the crucified Son of God and we saw that he was wounded for my transgressions and he was bruised for my iniquities and the chastisement of my peace was on him and by his stripes I am healed. And at that very instant, as we exercised faith in him, all of our sins were put away. One look of faith to Christ as our bleeding Savior and every spot and speck and stain of sin was removed and all of our guilt was pardoned forever. To know that there, Jesus said, I have borne your transgressions in my body on the tree. I have carried the great load of your sin. I have blotted them out like a cloud and they are gone from ever cast into the depths of the sea. Despite grieving him times without number, Christ has never cast us away, and he never will. But still, to this moment, he smiles upon us as those whom he has brought with blood, and to each one of us he says, You are a lily among the thorns. I have engraven you on the palms of my hands. You were far off, but I sought you and brought you to to myself. You were deaf, and I called you. I opened your ear to hear me, and you came, and you were encouraged. And in that moment, I took your burden from you and I set you free. Brothers and sisters, that's what in part these verses teach us about our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me close by taking the words of Isaac Watts, who adapted these very words into a hymn when he wrote the following. Let him embrace my soul and prove my interest in his heavenly love. The voice that tells me you are mine exceeds the blessings of the vine. Jesus, allure me by your charms. My soul shall fly into your arms. Our wandering feet your favors bring to the fair chambers of the king. 
Though in ourselves deformed we are, and black as Kadar tent appear. Yet when we put your beauties on, fair as the courts of Solomon. While at his table sits the king, he loves to see us smile and sing. Our graces are our best perfume and breathe like spikenard round the room. As myrrh new bleeding from the tree, such is a dying Christ to me. And while he makes my soul his guest, my bosom, Lord, shall be your rest. No beams of cedar or of fir can with your courts on earth compare. And here we wait until your love raise us to nobler courts above. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which the love of this man and this woman that are pictured in this song is a reflection of how you intend human marriage to be, but it's also a greater reflection of the divine marriage of Christ in the church and how Christ feels about us. Lord, we confess that we are in, of our, in and of ourselves deformed. We are dark and unlovely. We know our sin and our shame. And yet you speak to us in the gospel. As we trust in you again this morning, you say to us, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Because we are in Christ, you treat us as you treat him. You love us as you love him. And for any of us here this morning who know nothing of this love, who are searching for it all horizontally, searching in vain, it seems, to find the perfect one, help us to realize that there's only one. That is, Augustine told us, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so lead us to a place of resting in your steadfast love, which never ceases, and your mercies that never come to an end. We praise you and bless you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.